Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. This afternoon, we are continuing in the book of Exodus, and we're continuing with the burning bush. Uh, And so, last night, I ruined all of my notes because I sat down... And as part of a homework assignment, I watched the movie Exodus, God and Kings. You guys know the movie I'm talking about with Christian Bale? Uh, not, not too historically accurate, uh, but entertaining. Um, we are gonna be, we're going to be getting, diving pretty deep into this, and so we're going to move a little bit quickly this afternoon. But we are going to be uh, breaking this passage in piece by piece. So I want to start off by way of introduction. As you know, Father Chris started us last week talking about Exodus and giving us a little bit of a big picture. Um, One of the themes, one of the major themes to pay attention to in the book of Exodus is the theme of God's presence. It's the theme of God's presence, God's presence with his people. And a little bit later, we're going to discuss God's presence in relation to uh, where he was during the 400 years of suffering that the uh, Israelites went through in slavery. But a big theme of this, again, of the whole book of Exodus is God's presence with his people. And again, by way of introduction to this passage, I want to remind you that at this point, unlike Christian Bale, uh, Moses is, is no spring chicken. Um, you know, uh, he's 80 years old. And so for any of you who are 80, I'm sure there's a lot of life and vigor there, and I respect it. But at the same time, you're not running around, you know, hundreds of miles at a time. Um, it's, it's not that easy for you to kind of wander the desert and, and, and be all right. He's, he's kind of old. And not only is he a little older at this point, he's also eking out a living in a forgotten part of the world. Right? I mean, he was, he was a prince of Egypt, right? But now he is, he is in a real forgotten part of the world. I mean, if you look at the map, Midian is, right, this is, this is Egypt, um, this is where, you know, e- uh, as you know, Egypt was kind of like the dominant world power at this point, except maybe China. I'm not really sure where they are in their history at this point. But this is the major world power. He is way, uh, way, 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 way. I forgot to draw a line, but this is actually the Sinai Peninsula, way over here. And so he's in a forgotten part of the world. He's living as a shepherd, um, which is, again, not, not really a good, uh, you know, not a, not a well-known or lucrative occupation. And, and his, the one thing that I thought was really interesting um, is that his, his timing you know, of seizing the day, his moment of conquering, if he, was, if he was going to be leading his people out of Egypt by his own power, you would think that it would be when he was young, when he held a position of power in Egypt, right? And when he had, some, he had a lot of fire in his belly. You would have thought that God would have said, perfect, I've made you a prince of Egypt, now is your time to take the Israelites and lead them out of captivity. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's kind of the earthly way. I mean, why, that, that's a perfect uh, time in his life. That's perfect uh, positioning. You know, I mean, but, but that's not what happens. That, you know, Moses, you remember, right? He, kill, he kills an Egyptian, if you've done your homework, and uh, people saw it, and so he goes on the run. And this is many years later. And I think part of this 
And we'll find out as well as even his confidence is gone. Have you, have you anybody pre-read this passage? Have you seen how he kind of kept responding to God? So not only, you know, not only is he not in a position of power, not only is he older, but also his confidence is gone. You know, young people, I've heard, can be very sure of themselves, right? Very confident, very idealistic. This is what I've been told. Um, you know, they, they believe they can do anything, uh, my goodness, uh, young, young people. But, um, you know, that's, that's not where he is right now. And so he's kind of at the end of himself, right? I mean, he's kind of, got, he's kind of at the point where he's like, I've got nothing of my own to give to this endeavor. Does that, does that make sense to you? Has, have you has, has God ever gotten you to that place, by the way? Have you ever been, gotten to uh, the end of yourself in any given situation? Uh, it can happen. And if, you, and if you do the right thing, if you don't turn inward, but you turn to God in those circumstances, he can do some really, really incredible things through you because you're finally willing to listen and to take his advice, right? I mean, and that's kind of what we see. We're going to be talking about this after the whole desert portion of their wanderings, that 40 years. But a real pattern, it seems to be, of God using people is not only to use people who are not necessarily the best qualified, but also to really bring people to, a, to, to their knees before they are, uh, I, I guess you could say, equipped before they're able to actually serve him in a useful capacity, before they're useful to him, right? Because when you're not on your knees, you're so full of your own self and your own ideas and your own ambitions that you're not of much use to, to anybody but yourself. And so Moses is at the end of himself. Um, and we also learn that his identification with his own people, his ethnicity, is so strong now that he's a shepherd. You remember from last week, Egyptians detest shepherds? Shepherds were given their own spot. I think this is it. Um, over here, away, way away from the, the capital, way away from Memphis because they didn't want to have any dealings with them. But he's now just like, I'm, you know, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I'm one of these people. And uh, so again, he... He's a shepherd at this point, and I'm going to go ahead and jump into our passage before going any further, uh, starting in verse 1. Again, if you have uh, one of these Bibles, we are on page 46. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What do you make of that? Some kind of real bizarre mythology going on there, right? I mean, what, what, what an odd thing. Like, what, a, what, an ab, what an absolutely odd thing for God to appear as a burning bush. I'm being facetious when I say mythology, by the way. Um, this, is, this is written as a historical narrative, and when you read a work, you read it 
in the context and in the way it was written, right? You, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Like you don't read poetry literally uh, most of the time, or you're gonna be, I mean, if you read Song of Solomon literally, you're gonna be in a weird place. So, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta read things as they're presented. Um, well, he, what he had apparently done is, got done is he had taken his flock, and he had gone a very long distance, by the way. He had gone from, he had gone from Midian, and he had gone about, I would say, at least three weeks uh, west towards Egypt, of all places, and kind of worked his way down around here. And this is where he was. And it's interesting. If you guys like factoids that are somewhat irrelevant to the story, um, you know how when we give directions, we kind of picture ourselves facing north? Right? Like, like you know, north is kind of how we give directions. In the ancient Near East, people faced east when giving directions. Like eastward facing was kind of, I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with anything that's eastward facing that we have continued on as part of our tradition, like the chapel, for example. Um, in fact, early, you know how um, Muslims pray facing east? Uh, that was actually uh, originally a Jewish and then a Christian thing, was to pray uh, facing eastward. And so again, so they typically give directions facing east. That has very little to do with anything that we're talking about in the story, but uh, we have trivia night coming up. And so, there you go. Um, and so, what I do want to talk about, though, that has a lot to do with the story, is, uh, is God appearing in the burning bush. Do you all remember the term for that, when God kind of appears uh, in the presence of people in like a, in like a physical representation, or, or just any kind of representation? Theoph... Anybody? I thought I heard it. Theophany. It's a theophany. It's an appearance, it means appearance of God. And it's normally used in scripture as references of, of ways that God appears to humans. Um, and in the Old Testament, it's really interesting. When you read about theophanies and the appearances of God, there can be some, uh, there's a real blurring of the lines between God's presence sometimes and the vehicle by which God presents himself. Does that make sense? Like, well, I remember we were talking about when we were going through Genesis, you might remember, sometimes the angel of the Lord, you know, was considered a theophany. Like when Jacob uh, wrestles with God, you all, you all kind of remember that one? Um, that would be a theophany. And there's kind of this interesting, um, again, fluid interchange between the representative and God himself. And in that culture, that was, that was fine. That was no big deal. There were often these kind of fluid interchanges between people. We're going to talk about that in a second with Egyptian gods where there were at least three gods that were the, the god of the Nile. That wasn't, you know, that, we, we like to have everything, right, like compartmentalized and organized and situated in our minds. That, that's just not how they thought. It was no problem for them that it was an angel of the Lord or also God or also, you know, a burning bush that spoke. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense that it doesn't make sense. So, um, I mean, we actually do this. If you think about the Bible, right, like we call, like, uh, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The Word referring to Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Jesus. Well, we also call this the Word, right? And we believe that this is God's Word, right? This isn't, this isn't, just, uh, this isn't just a book written by um, a bunch of uh, you know, people scattered throughout history that were just explaining their own cultural context, Right? I mean, this is the Word of God, and Jesus is also the Word of God. So we also kind of have this interplay of 
relation to God. Does that, again, kind of make sense to you all? Like that's, that's the way that they thought. Um, and so it's interesting that, that God does this because God is om, omnipresent, right? Like that's something we've discussed. God is, God is everywhere at once. But there's also the way sometimes that the Bible talks about God as being more located or more present in a particular place, right? Uh, what, what, what would be one of those examples? Do you have any ideas? The three strangers with Abraham? I heard something else. Yeah, absolutely. Ark of the Covenant, right? God's presence was more centrally located there. The psalm says, you know, the, the psalms talk about God drawing near, right, um, to us, or, or God, where are you? You're far from me. Now, do we believe that God's not present everywhere? No. That sometimes God is more, uh, there's a different weight, I would say, to his presence. And so when he does choose to occupy a small space for the purpose of revelation, he does through, a lot of times, through representative, through a theophany. Um, sometimes angels are his representatives. Sometimes humans are his representatives. And here it's a, it's a burning bush. And so... Um, I want to talk about this idea for just a few more minutes because, again, it's, we're going to spend a little more time on this idea of theophany and, and why a burning bush. Um, I want to talk about this idea of theophany as fire because it's this blazing fire that attracts his attention. And, in fact, God is oftentimes described as a fire in Scripture. Have you noticed how closely those are often linked? Uh, Hebrews 12.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. So, so what do you all think are kind of the purposes of fire? Like, why would we compare the God of the universe to, to what we understand of fire? And there's, well, there's probably a wrong answer, but I won't berate you for it. So, what do you, I mean, what do you guys think about, like, what do you think, what do you think the purpose of fire is? Or why would God be fire? Purif that? Purification. Yeah, exact purity, right? Um, it's either Malachi or Micah, I always get those two confused, where it talks about the refining process being like a fire, you know, I mean, that's how, again, you take metals, right, and you, you distill and you purify metals. It's through fire. So God purifies. Why else would you say that he is a fire? It gets your attention. Yeah, it gets your attention. I mean, you, fire is something you don't just see. You feel, right? I mean, there's a, there's a um, I mean, fire almost kind of affects all of your senses if you count hearing the crackling of fire, right? I mean, it's very, it's hard to ignore a big fire. Uh, did you all ever light Christmas trees on fire when you were? Younger or this past year, and you see, you know, like it's. I'll tell you. Well, I remember one time when I was younger, I piled a bunch of Christmas trees up from all my friends, and I drew my name in gasoline across my backyard at about 1 a.m. and decided to light a fire. And my dad was thrilled, um, but it gets your attention, right? Yeah, that's, I think I'm still grounded. Um, so, but it, it does. It gets your attention, right? Like fire, like is incredibly present. Fire also, for the sake of time, I'm going to run through a few. Fire destroys, right? Fire consumes. Uh, fire gives life, right? I mean, there's, there's, you're, you're stranded on a desert island. You're going to want to be able to build a fire to cook things that you need to eat. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of parts of, of fires. Fire is beautiful, and fire is fatal. Fire is life-giving and life-taking or death-dealing. And it's kind of the human condition, right? Like, we can't... And it's actually interesting with fire. You can't, we can't as humans live with God, but we can't live without him either. Right? Like we can't live with God because he's holy and he's untouchable. And, and we're, without the blood of Jesus Christ, we're just not. Right? And so we can't, but at the same time, we can't live without him. I mean, have, you, have you ever walked with God very closely at a portion of your life and then felt, again, 
presence-wise distance from him, then you feel the, you know the soul ache I'm talking about that you can wake up to sometimes? It's a, it's a very real thing. Um, so again, fire is how God chooses to, to reveal himself. And, and as I was doing this study, uh, I came across something that I hadn't seen for a long time, and it was uh, a reminder of Blaise Pascal's experience with God. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Are you familiar with this story? So, you all know Blaise Pascal, right? I mean, I would, I would argue that he is um, one of the smartest men that's ever lived. Uh, he's my personal vote for the smartest man that's ever lived. Um, and he was a Christian, and he was uh, a Christian. He was a, a kind of a Renaissance man, right? He did, he did everything, and he did it well. He was a scientist, and one of the things that he, he, had, a, he had an experience with God. He had one of those, and I'm not charismatic, um, if you, I, I don't disrespect it. I just don't understand it personally. Like I, you know, it's an experiential thing. But well, he had a really charismatic experience with God, and it so moved him that when he died, they found his experience that he had written in a journal, sewn into his jacket over his heart, as a reminder of that experience with God. It was so moving to him. I mean, this is, and this is what this is what it said. It says, I'm only going to read part of it. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, Feast of St. Clement, Pope and Martyr, and others in Martyrology. Vigil of St. So, uh, let me move on. From about half past ten at night until, up, until half past midnight. Fire, all caps, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. And he goes on, and it's, it's actually really beautiful and powerful, and you can tell he was significantly moved, but that's, that's what he starts with is this fire, the fire of God's presence. Um, so, anyway, that's my little historical tidbit for you for today. So we're going to continue on with verse, I'm going to go back to verse 4 and we're going to continue on. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, so again, he calls out uh, to Moses, Moses sees a burning bush that's not being burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Um, This wasn't to get his intention. If you were to say someone's name twice in ancient Semitic culture, it was an expression of endearment or friendship or affection. I mean, because, you, you know, again, you imagine getting spoken of out of a bush, that would be a little off-putting, right? But it's, you know, this is a way of saying, like, Moses, this is, this is affection, this is drawing him in. And Moses, Moses what's, what was Moses' response? Look right before verse 7, and Moses did what? When confronted with God's presence. Yep. Here I am. And then, he, and then God reveals himself, and he says, I am, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face. And it's interesting that his response was to hide his face immediately on hearing who this God was. Now, you have, to, you have to remember that the Israelites, the Hebrews, did not believe in just one God at this time. Um, their, most of them, their culture had been so, you know the word syncretized? We've talked about that before. When we blend, our, we blend other religions with, with God's religion, right? Or like the true religion. That they believed in multiple gods. You know, all these Egyptian gods and the God of our fathers. And so, God identifies himself as this very specific God. 
And it's interesting, I want to, we're going to talk about this after they're wandering in the desert, but there's, there seems to be through Exodus this kind of thought, this hesitation of the Israelites that God, this Yahweh God, is, like, is just one of the gods and that maybe he's the God of shepherds. And then you get to maybe he's the God of the desert, right? And so when they go into Canaan, actually, they're kind of like, well, who's our God now? Like, gods were considered specialized and localized. Does that make sense? Like, nobody, no, no faith, no religion had, an, you know, the, uh, the prime mover, right? The, uh, un, the uncaused cause, the great God of the universe, the God. Monotheism wasn't a thing. Y'all follow me so far? So you'll also see, it's another thing of Exodus, is people figuring out who God is, which is kind of all of us, right? As we walk with God, we're told something, but we really experience, uh, I would call it progressive revelation, right? Where you know a little bit, but then your understanding of God deep, deepens and deepens and deepens as you live, right? You all follow me so far? And that's, progressive revelation is kind of the story of the Israelites, of their experience. And you can actually see that in Scripture is, um, there are many gods. Wait a minute, no. All these other ones are just mute and dumb idols. They're not real. Do you follow me? That's, that's what we call progressive revelation. This is actually an important point. Progressive revelation, I'm just going to give you some, um, some dictionary words. Progressive revelation is not the same thing as abrogation. You'll hear me when I say that? Abrogation is where... Uh, that's what uh, the Quran does a lot, which is, well, this used to be true, but now this con anything later supersedes what was true formerly. Does that make sense? So if it contradicts, you just go with the later ruling. Do you all see what I'm saying? Progressive revelation is not the same thing, and here's the difference. The difference is in principle. Like, when Jesus Christ comes, for example, and, you know, um, you ever hear, like, why don't you guys eat shellfish, you're like, you know, shellfish, or you can't wear two pieces of clothing that have different kinds of fabric. Did you know that in the Old Testament? So all of you uh, polycotton types, you know, or whatever it is, you'd be in, you know, you'd be in a world of hurt right now. Um, yeah, the, the idea is not that Jesus came along and said, you know, all those things aren't important, those things don't matter. Um, Jesus came and fulfilled them, and so when we look at the Bible and we have confidence, we say, okay, the way that theologians um, divvy those things up, and I'm going to do this briefly because I really want to get into this in a few weeks. The way that theologians divvy it up is they say, okay, well, there's ceremonial law, which are like you know, the purity rituals and the cleansing things, and even two different types of clothing could be a ceremonial law. The reason that God said that was because purity was such a big deal, right? Like you've, you've been infiltrated by all these different religions. Find purity, Right? And we're going to have that represented in everything, even the clothes that you wear. Does that make sense, everybody? Ceremonial law. Um, civil law, right? Well, when Jesus came, it wasn't to establish an earthly monarchy, right? And so, well, in a way, but not really. So, um, so civil law is not, no longer applicable, right? Like, you don't just get to go around stoning people anymore for breaking God's law. But what law remains? Moral law, right? Moral law. The things that were immoral in the Old Testament, um, outside of ceremonial and outside of civil law, like should you, is it still is it okay to steal? No, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's a preservation of that. I'm getting a little heady. I'm sorry, but I do want to just get this idea of the difference between abrogation and progressive revelation. Y'all kind of follow me so far. So again, as you go through the Old Testament, 
Just watch to see, just start watching to see how the Israelites develop a greater understanding of who God is. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, you'll ask him for me. Um, no, that's entirely possible. Was it a, was it sacrifice and him kind of symbolizing and sacrificing himself? Um, you'd fit right in with the church fathers, by the way, because they loved allegory. I mean, they just went, they went nuts for it. It was great. So let's continue on because we are six, we are halfway through our time and six verses in. Um, I, yeah, I really know how to beat a dead horse. All right, verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, there's a lot of sheep and goats, and there's a lot of bees, right? I mean, that's, that's what I was always confused when I was young what that meant. That sounded weird to me, but that's what it is. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, or bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. Then you have, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I'm going to continue reading and then we'll come back. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And I'm going to stop right before the biggest point of this, kind of our morning. Right? Like, this, is, this is the reason that the E100 was chosen. Um, first of all, there's two really big challenges to Moses' faith that appear here uh, in verses 7 through 12. The first is a challenge that we all share, which is the challenge of suffering. Uh, you, could, you, know, you can imagine that he would have asked, if you were willing to help now, why didn't you help earlier? Right? I mean, that's a challenge to Moses' faith. Where were you? Right? You imagine that that's, that's an implicit question of God. Like, where, where were you? How can I trust you now if I couldn't trust you before? That's the question of suffering. And... I have a lot of notes on suffering, and we're not going to get into it because it's 4.30. But, uh, you know, kind of like the biggest question in our faith. Um, don't throw stones. We'll, we'll get to it another time. But that's a big question. And the second challenge is um, one that is personal for Moses. How, if he has tried to help his people in the past, I mean, he tried to and failed to help them, how is it now that in his later years he could be God's choice to deliver the nation, right? Like if God... Hopefully you have the level of humility where if God came to you and said, you know, you're going to save your country, you'd be like, me? Are you sure? Right? Like, hopefully none of you are so narcissistic that you're like, finally, you know, like, I'll fix it. You know, like, I'm up for it. I'm in. Um, I'm still young enough to be that narcissistic. But um, anyway, like, you know, that's, that's one of those things, right? Where, where Moses is, you know, that's another question. Is God, why me? Why now? And what's also interesting is that God calls them his people. Like Moses had just started acknowledging them as Moses' people, but this is actually important because there's times where Moses stands against God in Exodus, but God's laying it out right here. Who Are they Moses' people or God's people primarily? They're God's people, right? 
And you'll see a little tug of war going on. And again, I'm just trying to give you themes to look for. You'll see a tug of war going on with, with Moses trying to wrest control of ownership. But they're God's people, and he makes that clear. And also, notice this. The fulfillment of the sign was not just getting people out of Egypt. What was it that God said that would, that would show that this, this will be the sign? They'll get them out of Egypt and what? Serve God on the mountain. This is, a, this is actually a very brief but important pastoral point for us. How often do we seek God just to pull us out of Egypt, right? Like to just get us out of Egypt. And we don't have the second sign fulfilled, which is we continue to serve him on the mountain. Right? How many, how many times do we have a real half-hearted, unfinished approach to God, which is God, just get me out of Egypt. You know, and God's like, that's not the fulfillment. That's, that's part of it, right? Like, that's part of it, is getting out of Egypt. But there's another really strong part of it that is um, serving God afterwards and having that bring you into, into wholeness, into completion, to kind of finish the work that he's done. Does that make sense? I mean, how many times have you seen people get out of Egypt and then go right back to Egypt? I mean, the Israelites almost did that. We'll find out that later, right? They're, they're like, it was way better back there. I mean, there's that like, no, it'll be fulfilled when you are serving me and worshiping me. A kind of precursor to, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Yeah. He did. Oh, he, absolute, he absolutely did. And, again, as a sign of, um, as we talked about as a theme, he was also present with them, right? We'll see that with the um, cloud and the pillar of fire. So, let's continue on. Verse 13. <clears throat> then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So we've learned in Genesis that God continually proved himself to the patriarchs, right? To the forefathers. Like, he, like Abraham, he kept showing up and helping them. But that was, that was in smaller situations, you could say. Right now, they're going up against a world power, right? Like Egypt is a world power. We're talking about trying to figure out who God is. And a big question that Moses is asking implied in this, who, who are you? Who are you is not just like, hey, what's your name? Who are you is... Um, what power do you have? What ability can you accomplish what you say you'll accomplish? You know, who are you is a much bigger question than tell me your name. It's it's do you are you able to even fulfill these promises or are you just kind of, you know, I don't know, wanting some extra worship or something from me? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, yeah, he's he is remind yes, he's reminding Moses of his ancestry and also his identity as God, right? Like he's, he's reminding him, yes, Moses, you, I am your God because of your ancestry. I'm also the God of all of your people, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of that pointing to is, is it self-identifying. And it's interesting, actually, the Hebrew in here is the word ma, which is what, when he's asking about God's name. Like what is, not who are you, what is your name? And uh, this, is, this is a question, again, it seeks the significance, character, quality, like who... What are you entirely? Um, well, anyway, let's keep moving on because for the sake of time. Um, again, so are you powerful enough to do these things? Verse 14, God says, I am the one who always is. Right? I am that I am. Father Chris says this is I isness. 
Some other way, it's a nonsense word, right? Some other ways to interpret this would be, I am being that I am being. I am the is-ing one. It's from the verb to be. Uh, I am the one who always is. This is a totally different concept of God than any, any civilization has been used to. God as being itself. You all follow me? Like God is, God, is, God is basically saying, I am being itself. I am uncaused. I am uncreated. I rely on no one and nothing. I can exist entirely unto myself. I am being. And not only am I being, I have always been being and will always be being. Does that make sense? Like there's no, I mean, we, we actually, this is kind of easy because this is what we've been taught as far as an understanding of God, but this was totally radically foreign to them. Right? Their, their gods had names and appearances, and they bickered, and they, you know, they were born, and they died. Uh, Egyptian gods, you know, their, their stories, are, and, and not just Egyptian, but um, all the Semitic gods kind of had this sort of life. And this is, this is actually radically different, radically different than anything else that experienced, which, is, which makes sense why the Israelites, why the Hebrews would take a long time to understand God, right? And we're still trying to wrestle with the concept of the Trinity. That's difficult. Right? Like that's, who is this God? What is this God? Um, and so what God is saying is tell them, being itself has sent you. Being itself has sent you. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to Canaan. I'm not going to go into the whole list. Um, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give, you this people and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a claim for an unknown God. Right? I mean, clearly the Egyptian gods were powerful in the mind of the Hebrews because they had all this wealth and power and dominance. Like, that's a, that's a bold claim is, all right, Moses, I'm going to get you all out of there. I'm going to do whatever signs. I'm basically going to run rampant over their gods and do whatever signs I want to in Egypt. Oh, and by the way, you're going to ask them for their gold and silver, and they're just going to give it to you. And then you're going to go. Right? Like, like you, would you blame Moses for being like, are you sure about this? You know what I mean? Like, like you can't really blame Moses for his hesitation. I mean, we, we doubt God's claims all the time. And... God has proven himself more to us. God has proven himself significantly more to us through history at this point. And our, our asks are often smaller than what Moses is asking, right? So, so that's, I mean, you look at, you look at Moses' uh, Moses's, uh, 
protestations, and, and you're just like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense, Moses. It's hard to fault the guy. Um, now, I want to I touch on something real quick. Look at verse 18. Please let us go. This is the request to, to the Pharaoh. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. That doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Like three days? Well, obviously, the movement of 400,000 people or so is a lot. But actually, they're not, they're not actually trying to be deceptive here. What's interesting is um, that they, they were a society that was incredibly... I mean, think of Eastern societies today, right? Like, we, you, like masters of understatement. You know, when you say something, it's like, or Southern in the United States, like, uh, I'm fifth generation Sanford, so I'm Southerner, right? Like, Southerners are like, we're the masters of, like, asking for a little bit when maybe really wanting, meaning a lot more than we say. Do, do I have any Southern here? Like, you say a little bit, but you really mean more. Um, a lot of us do it in some ways. Like, can I have a second of your time? Do you mean a second of your time? Or do you mean, can I have an indefinite amount of your time? Right? Like, that's what, you know, just a, just a second. It's like, well... You know, I have no idea how much time you're asking for me. Or, um, masters of a state, would you please hand me the remote? That means, can I choose, you know, I'm, I would like to choose what we are all watching on TV for the, you know, for the foreseeable future. That doesn't just mean, like, hand me this piece of plastic, right? Um, can I have the, dad, can I have the keys to the car? Right? Again, you all see what I'm saying? Like, it's, no, you, I want to take the car out and drive it and go wherever. You know, again, like, that's... That's kind, of, that's kind of how it is. And so this three days is more like, hey, we're leaving. You know, it's like the polite way of saying, let's get out of here. And so clearly Pharaoh's going to be a little more strict in the way that he, he handles that. Um, so again, it's kind of the polite way of saying we're going to leave. And, and this is also something that I, thought, I found interesting, just as a, as a tidbit before we move on. We're actually doing okay on time. Um, what were they going to use the gold and, sil and silver jewelry for? Like what? <laughs> that's what they ended up using them for. Wow, spoiler alert. Um, yeah, that's what they ended up using them for, false idols. But what, was, what do you think was the intention of bringing... I mean, they're about to wander the desert for a very long time. What, can you eat gold? No, not really. Yes. Yeah. God's going to give them very specific instructions on how to um, build an ark and how to... Uh, create, I don't want to say um, vessels because he's not really just housed in them, right? Like, I mean, he's God. But, you know, create these religious uh, artifacts, basically, on how to worship him. And so that's amazing. God has foresight. I mean, again, obviously. But that's, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons. Yes, Dr. Large. Oh, is it in your study Bible? Yes. Yeah, I'm actually going to ask that you guys not use study Bibles because then you can correct me and you can see if I'm wrong. <laughs> And that really puts me on the spot. I'm kind of just up here winging it. So if you have a study Bible, I ask that you... See, that's why these don't have notes, if you'll notice. Um, I'm just kidding. All right, so let's move on to chapter 4. And then we can always circle back and get into some more of the, the nitty-gritty about the rest of it. So God makes... You know, God introduces himself, says, I am being, and I'm also going to do all of these incredible, impossible things. Then Moses answered... But behold, this is again, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. 
So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Which, by the way, is not how you grab a snake. No, I'm, ser- I'm serious, though, right? Like, like, that's an act of faith. Like, you know, you want to catch a snake right behind the head so that they can't turn around and bite you. To you know, whip a snake around by the tail, unless you're a professional, is not, not good. Um, grab it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham... By the way, the reason I keep skipping the God of, the God of, the God... Is because in the Hebrew construction, the Hebrew language, there is no way to say with commas, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have to say the God of Abraham, the God of... Do you see what I'm saying? There's just a brief tidbit. So I'm not being disrespectful to the Word of God when I'm abbreviating. Although that just took all the extra time. So... Uh, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. They will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. That's right. So it is, it's a foretaste of, of kind of you know, the plagues that God's going to do, the signs and wonders that they're going to do. Um, and honestly, God is being very gracious, right? Like he's, he's, he is condescending to give Moses a sign, right? Like... like I remember being young and always saying, God, give me a sign, give me something clear, give me a sign, right? And it's like, well, he doesn't really have to. Like, you know, he's, he's God. He doesn't have to condescend. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he, he gives us some very clear road markers. But that's, a, that's an act of real grace on his part, right? Like, he doesn't have to do that. He, can, he has every right to say, jump, right? And we, you know, like, just respond. So whenever God, I just want to say this briefly. Whenever God does give you a sign, maybe pray for something, you see things kind of connecting for you. Uh, I would encourage you to be very thankful because that is not something that you are owed. Uh, and it is certainly not something that I am owed when that happens. Does that make sense? Like, um, yes, there's examples of people praying for signs, like um, I was a Gideon, but, you know, the, the wet fleece. But that's the instances of miracles in the Bible are few and far between. They're actually heavily concentrated in the time of Moses and heavily concentrated later in the time of Elijah and Elisha. They're not just consistently, you know, miracles are just happening all the time. Does that make sense? Like, they're, like you read the Old Testament, there's not just constant, you know, things just happening willy-nilly. Um, I've used that phrase in a long time. Um, anyway, so, so again, when these things happen, we need to be really grateful. Um, do, you have any, do you guys have any other points or any other thoughts about... Uh, this, this particular part of the passage. Um, the Hebrew word for leprosy, by the way, is not just leprosy as we know it. It covers a whole range of skin diseases. I mean, it can be, it can be anything from um, psoriasis, uh, ringworm. In fact, it's even used for things like syphilis and mildew. So leprosy isn't just leprosy as we know leprosy. It can be really any, any range of skin issues that, that happen. So keep that in mind as we go throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't just that leprosy was just you know, rampant everywhere. There was, there was all sorts of issues. Um, and even houses were said to have leprosy. Well, that's 
mildew, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, it just seems odd that with God talking out of a bush and Moses there being so reluctant after the bush tells him his whole history of, you know, Isaac, I mean, yeah. the whole history. And God knows his history, and he's reiterating that back to Moses. And Moses still doesn't understand what's going on. And then he has to perform some yeah. tricks or what, whatever you might call sure. them. And, and one of the tricks is a snake. And what does the snake symbolize? I mean, in, in the Garden of Eden, it could have been the devil, but it might have been all the knowledge of the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And all right, so just to restate that, the uh, you know, why, like, why is Moses continuing to protest? Why would God have to show him signs after? I mean, you think a burning bush—that's kind of a sign, right? Like, a, that's not burning up. Um, that's not something any of you have ever seen. Dare I say? Uh, neither have I. Um, you know, so so why? Well, there's two ways to look at it, or uh, several ways actually. One is again. Um, are you strong enough to do what you'll say? And will you follow through, right? Like, where were you for 400 years? Are you, am I going to go talk to Pharaoh and look behind me and just be like, oh, uh, you know, like, whoops. You know what I mean? Like, do you? Yeah, really. Like, you know, like, you guys ever had somebody do that? Like, set you up and then my, sorry, Jordan. I don't think you're ever going to watch this, but uh, it's mentioned you by name. My younger brother, uh, you know, like, that was kind of my frustration when we were both really young is, you know, I'd. We'd have a problem in the house, so I'd stand up to the parents, you know, and be like, we're united against this, right? And you turn around, it's just like, what the heck, man? You know, I mean, it, was, it was frustrating. I'm over it. Um, but working through it. That was only, you know, 22 years ago. Um, so, so that's one of them, right? Like, God, are you going to show up? God, are you strong enough to do this? But then there's also that, that again, that ancient uh, Near Eastern polite refusal. You can think of Eastern culture, right? Like a lot of times, like if you, if you offer somebody from an Eastern culture a gift, it's an automatic first or, or second polite refusal. Does that make sense? Like almost immediately, you know, it's like, no, thank you. You have to really say, I would like you to take this and I would like you to take this before they're like, okay, great. You know, because if you accept on the first offer, you're rude. I don't, again, I'm, I'm Western through and through. I don't get it, right? Like you, you offer me something, I say, thank you very much. Uh, I'm on my way. But that's not the way that they were. So to answer your question in a roundabout way, there are a lot of reasons why it could be. And it could be a mix of all of them that he's, that he's continually saying no. And as for the serpent, that's a good point. What is the, what is the serpent? Um, in surrounding cultures, the serpent represented like fertility. It represented healing was another thing that it represented. Um, and special wisdom. It wasn't it wasn't really evil as far as like the garden goes, right? So there, that's kind of what the serpent was in those cultures. And the only, but the Bible doesn't really typically use the serpent symbolically very often. The only other time really is um, we'll find when Moses holds up the bronze serpent and people look on it and get healed after getting bit by all those snakes. Um, spoiler alert. But um, most of the time the Bible doesn't actually deal with the same symbols that the Egyptians use. So is there significance to the serpent, or is it more of just like a, you know, who knows? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good question, too. Um, and this is also something that's interesting. So look at the last sign that, that Moses never actually has to do, uh, or that God doesn't actually do. Verse 9, they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, 
You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Um, as we'll find out, when I, like, I can't wait till we get to the actual plagues. They're horrible, and I'm not excited about the fact that they happened. Like, you know, they were devastating to a population. But the significance and richness of them is, is profound because it is God dominating other gods. Um, in early Egyptian, the name of the Nile, which if you want to practice saying some Egyptian, if you want to say Nile, it's, it's uh, happy. Happy is, is Nile. Um, well, that's the same name as the Nile god. Um, and it was actually, it was a male-female hermaphrodite deity was what represented the Nile. And it's because it both fertilized the land and also nourished it. So that was kind of their thinking and coming up with this. But um, Osiris is also the god of the Nile. Um, Subek is also the god of the Nile. He's the crocodile god. The dead king Unis is also the god. Do you see what I'm saying about them kind of having these um, different, you know, and they were all the god of the Nile, and that was fine. Is that, do you see what I'm saying, going back to the theophany a little bit and the interchange of things? And so when God says, you know, like, basically I'll dominate the Nile, he's saying that whole collective hodgepodge of deities is, is under my thumb. Does that make sense? So let's move on. We've got seven more verses in six minutes. Huh. All right. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Which you can imagine, Moses is like, I'm not, I don't really know you, right? Like, so, yes, right? Sure. Um, verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. So up until this point, going back to the whole him protesting, it could have just been polite refusals, right? It could have been, well, you know, because even that, like that whole self self-effacing thing, you know, look, I'm not really good enough, you know, like, that's not really for me. That's actually was a common way of, you know, just, it's not that you don't really believe that you're not good enough necessarily, you're just trying to at least have some sign of humility, right? It might be false humility, which most of the time it is, but, it, you know, you're just trying to present that. Well, then when he says, God sent someone else, that's kind of it, right? Like, at that point, we're not being polite anymore. At that point, we're just exhibiting a lack of faith, and so God's response is to get a little miffed. Because um, it, it, it's, it's, it's faithless. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. Wow. Oh, you know, like, again, Moses is, Moses is here, right? Aaron is coming out to meet him. You think God didn't already kind of know how things were going to turn out? You think that he didn't have a hand in things? It's not, you know, that's not a coincidence. Like, oh, by the way, he's on his way. Um, He's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, will, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, which you shall do the sign, with which you shall do the signs. Um, so there's two ways. I want to talk about Moses's difficulty with speech here. There's two ways to look at this. The traditional way is that Moses was not a good communicator, right? Have you heard that before? Moses couldn't speak. He was thick-tongued, whatever that is. 
you know, and he was not a good communicator. Um, there's actually a really strong argument, and I would actually side with the opposite of that. Moses is, really, is actually really eloquent. Um, in Acts 7.22, Stephen said that Moses was powerful in speech and action. In fact, you see Moses giving speeches throughout the rest of it. So I would say um, Moses is, coming, you know, is really digging deep, either to come up with an excuse or he is... Um, or he's again doing the polite refusal thing. But I would, I would argue from the way you see Moses speak in Scripture, that he is a fairly powerful communicator. He could, he could do it. Yeah, he was educated. And again, ancient, you know, part of classical education, this is actually pre-classical, it's ancient, uh, more ancient than ancient, education is, you know, like some semblance of rhetoric, some semblance of oratory, right? Like some semblance of being able to communicate well. That's a big part of education. It probably should still be. Um, you guys would be a lot more comfortable. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, anyway, that's um, that's uh, so so was he was he not a good communicator, or was he just looking for an out? You know, like and then and then God still says, okay, I'll work with you, right? Like I will work with you. We'll have Aaron come along, and you know, since you're not secure, you're not ready. I'm going to have him. But notice that God doesn't say I'm going to speak, you know, directly to Aaron. He still speaks through Moses, right? Moses is the prophet. Period. Aaron becomes the head of the priesthood, but Moses is the prophet, and God speaks to Moses and from Moses to Aaron, who then communicates, right? I mean, it's a little telephone, but, you know, it could be a lot easier, but that's, that's the way that God has set it up, right? Like, Moses is still the prophet. They're not, and you'll find this out later, right? Like, they're not co-equal leaders of the Israelites when they were the Hebrews when they come up. I'm using those terms kind of interchangeably. Here, in the text, they're primarily, I think, known as Hebrews, but... God of, you know, God of Israel too. So, um, it just, that's literally all it means is that I will speak my words to you and when the words come out of you that are my words, they will be as if from God. That's what, that's what it means. It doesn't mean like if Moses were to go on his own and say, you know, Aaron do Tim jumping jacks like Aaron would do. You know, it's just, it's just you will be my mouth, my mouthpiece. Um, and I've got a little excursus here on what staffs mean. In an ancient world, but we'll save that for another time. Stabs are a lot more significant than you think. Um, I'll just be brief, actually. They serve as, they kind of served as your weapon. They served as your wallet. Like, that was your identifying mark. Each staff had a name carved in, well, not a name necessarily, but a symbol or some sort of artful design carved into it, and people would recognize each other by their staves. And um, what God is doing here is saying, Moses, this is no longer the staff of Moses, this is the staff of God. Now, those words will be used interchangeably, but that staff takes on a whole new meaning of, like, you are, you are holding the staff of God, and it's, it's really the marker or you know, identifier of the power of God, which we'll find out next time. So, I think that's all the time. It's 5 o'clock, all the time we have for, except for a couple questions. Do you guys have any questions about this passage at all? Why a burning bush, again? Right? Like, who knows? Um, God could have presented himself in a bunch of ways, and he actually does in the Bible, but it certainly got Moses' attention. I think that was the intended effect. So, yep, it's the exact same. It is, it is the exact same staff that, that Moses... Well, yes, and Aaron's staff actually becomes significant too. Uh, you'll see that the staff of Aaron is also used to do works of great power. But, um, and it's also kind of referred to as the staff of God, but Moses' staff is the primary staff of God. All right, well, let's pray to close this out. Um, Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for this time that we have gathered together. 
Um, God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Um, God, I pray that we would continue to seek after uh, you, to know you even better so that we could put our trust and our faith in you as Moses did, that we would be prepared to be uh, vessels for you of the works that you would do uh, in us and through us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.